people will sometimes say if they're not well-versed in the research and the medical field, they'll say, well, why can't people who have an overeating problem or you know, are addicted to food, why can't they just stop? Why can't they just not eat those things? And that's just not how it works. That's not how the brain works. And especially in our modern food environment where all those things are being constantly thrown at people and forced on people to many degrees, it's a challenge and that's why we're here and that's why we see so many people struggling to navigate through that challenge. Food Addiction is a podcast which explores the disease of food addiction and presents the solution. We interview professionals and counselors who specialize in the disease of food addiction and we interview individuals who have successfully recovered from food addiction and discuss how they did it. Esther Helga Goodmans-Dotier was motivated to change careers after she recovered from food addiction by opening a food addiction treatment center and the INFACT School, the world's first and only sugar and food addiction counseling training, which offers a recognized certification. Check out the website for more information on obtaining this certification, as well as proven recovery programs at infactschool.com. Listen to these episodes as we discuss the problem and the solution around food addiction. I'm Susan Branscom. I am a recovered food addict and the host of this podcast, an In Fact School podcast, Food Addiction. On the podcast today, my guest is Dr. Nicole Avina. Welcome, Dr. Avina. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Susan. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'm just, I'm already getting chills. Um, so I'm going to introduce you and then we'll dive into some questions. Okay, sounds great. Nicole Avina, PhD, is a world-renowned research neuroscientist, expert, and pioneer in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction. Dr. Avina received her PhD in psychology and neuroscience from Princeton University and completed her postdoctoral fellowship at the prestigious Rockefeller University in New York City. She has published over 90 scholarly journals on topics related to diet, nutrition, and overeating. She has published several books, including Why Diets Fail, Because You're Addicted to Sugar, which I read, and Hedonic Eating, the, How the Pleasure of Food Affects Our Brains and Behavior. Her research achievements have been honored by awards from several groups, including the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Avina regularly appears on TV and radio and speaks at universities, government agencies, schools, and special interest groups about her research on food, addiction, and nutrition. She's appeared on the Dr. Oz Show and the Doctors and at numerous events around the country. So welcome again, Dr. Avina. Thank you. Well, I've listened to several of your podcasts. I've watched you on YouTube at a conference, and I've read your book. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to diving into some questions. Um, I think this is really going to help listeners. Yeah, I, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. I just think it's so valuable to bring the science and the experiences together. And I think that mm -hmm. the two inform each other so much. I often hear from people about you know how much they've learned about themselves after reading about the research studies and how you know understanding the addiction and how it affects the brain has really helped them. And, you know, my answer to that is often, well, thank you for sharing your experience of what it was like to live with 
a food addiction and what it's still like to live with a food addiction and how that really can inform the research and helps the scientists out there to think about these issues on a deeper level. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Esther and I, when we started the podcast, uh, we decided that let's talk about the problem, the addiction, the brain science, and let's talk about the solution, Mm -hmm. which she and I have recovered in 12-step recovery. Uh, So, and it, your book and everything I've read and heard about you reinforces to me that, you know, it wasn't my fault, you know, that uh, I wasn't a failure, you know, and we'll get into that. But uh, let's, let's start by, um, it's interesting, you have a neuroscience background, and you have uh, training and education in psychology. I thought that was an interesting combination about kind of how the brain works, and then how we think. So talk about that. Yeah, so it's somewhat due to how old I am, (laughs) to be quite honest. (laughs) So when I was doing my PhD, um, this is back in the early 2000s, there weren't really any standalone neuroscience programs. Most neuroscience PhD programs were housed within another discipline like psychology. So at Princeton University, which is where I did my PhD, the neuroscience program was really an arm of the psychology department. And so um, I had the fortunate experience to have that happen because I think a lot of what I'm interested in from a neuroscience standpoint really does intersect with psychology and, you know, that whole biopsychosocial approach to understanding problems is really a foundation of what I've used in my work. So I think um, having that experience has actually been really wonderful. Nowadays, most programs that are out there at universities have their very own neuroscience department. Even at Princeton University, where I'm still a faculty member, we have you know a standalone neuroscience institute now. It still collaborates with the psychology department, but it's more of its own um, entity at this point. Mm, yeah. Well, one of the things you say is sugar addiction is real and it isn't your fault, which I, I mentioned. And you also say in the book, High calorie, high sugar foods are easily accessible to many people today, and portion sizes have increased dramatically over the years. So, talk about both of those things the addiction's not our fault, and then the change in, in foods in our society. Well, the piece about addiction not being the person's fault who's addicted, I think that's a larger issue beyond even food addiction. I think we're seeing that with other addictions, drug and alcohol addiction, for example, there is still unfortunately this stigma that some people hold where they think that addictions are a moral failing, where it's the person's fault who's addicted. And that doesn't take into consideration the biological factors, the genetic factors, the fact that our environment is plagued with all of these addictive substances. Even alcohol, I I don't know about where it is where you live, but I know where I live, you could go in the grocery store. Sometimes I think there's more alcohol in the grocery store than there is options for food. I mean, it's just insane. Um, And so we have very easy access to these highly addictive substances, and especially, you know, for the purposes of our discussion, food. And it's something that we, you know, don't realize is in our environment, it's taking over, it's hijacking our brains when we eat these things. And that's what's perpetuating the addiction. 
And I think that that's really the piece that I think is very important for people to understand because when we talk about food addiction, you know, people will sometimes say if they're not well-versed in the research and the medical field, they'll say, well, why can't people who have an overeating problem or, you know, are addicted to food, why can't they just stop? Why can't they just not eat those things? And that's just not how it works. That's not how the brain works. And especially in our modern food environment where all those things are being constantly thrown at people and forced on people to many degrees, it's a challenge. And that's why we're here. And that's why we see so many people struggling to navigate through that challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have a definition in your book on food addiction, which is pretty simple, but I like it. It's it's uh, food addiction is a dependence-like relationship with highly palatable foods such as those high in sugars. And I would put carbs, flour, other trigger and binge foods in there. So it's a dependence-like relationship with these foods, right? Yes. And I think that when people start to really evaluate their relationship with food and start to think about the reasons why they eat certain foods, you know, their emotions around eating certain foods, they start to realize that it is a dependence-like relationship. It's not a healthy relationship. I mean, the purpose of food is essentially to fuel our bodies and to give us nourishment and calories and to give us nutrients that we need to stay well and to function throughout our day. And Mm -hmm. I think when people who are struggling with eating a healthy diet start to reflect on, you know, what is happening and their relationship with food, they start to see that they're not using food as a way to nourish themselves. In many cases, they're using food as a way to self-soothe, as a way to make themselves feel better because of some other issue in their life. Um, And also as just a way to cope. And I think that food for many people can unfortunately become a coping mechanism for dealing with stressors, in some cases, you know, for overcoming other addictive substances, food can simply become the replacement substance because it's socially acceptable, it's legal, you know, and it's considered to be innocuous to most people. But the reality is food addiction can be just as dangerous and deadly as drug or alcohol addiction. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I experienced some of what you're talking about, which is my husband used to say, why can't you just eat in moderation? And I'm like, I don't know why I can't <laughs> eat in moderation. I dieted for 43 years. And I was really successful on them until I started to use food again, which I did because of what you're talking about, which are the stressors. Uh, I was working really too long, which is another addiction. Work can be an addiction. And I was working 10, 12 hours a day to be successful. And yeah, I was using food to uh, to calm myself. Um, in the book, you say um, many of the diet programs out there should work, but they don't. People go on a diet, then quit. Weight regain and yo-yo dieting have become common and a vicious cycle for too many Americans. And you say if you are psychologically and chemically dependent on added sugars and excessive amounts of carbohydrates, your addiction may lead you into a vicious cycle of overeating withdrawal and craving for these foods. We're going to talk about tolerance, withdrawal, and craving, but talk about the diet programs, and and we're going to talk about dopamine as well and the neurotransmitters. But these diets, I mean, I was really good at it. I could lose 50 pounds, but I would 
I would gain it back and more, right? Right. And I think that's the problem. It's an industry. The whole purpose of being on a diet is so that you'll go off of a diet, gain weight, and then the industry can continue to exist. I mean, if you think about it, if people were to successfully be able to navigate their food journey and eat healthy, there'd be no diet industry. So they'd be out of business. And so it's in the best interest of the field for there to be multiple diets. And that's kind of how it works. And many people get caught in that trap of diet after diet after diet, where they'll feel like they're quote unquote successful because they lost the weight. And then suddenly the weight creeps back on and then they have to try a different diet. And it's not only a vicious cycle of weight loss, weight regain in many cases, but it's a vicious psychological cycle of shame and guilt and then being proud of yourself and then shame and guilt. And that is so unhealthy and and contributes just negatively in so many different ways to people's mental health. So I think that the whole diet culture is what's really causing the problem. And this whole idea Mm -hmm. that, you know, oh, eat this certain way or you'll lose weight. And people develop this mindset that, well, if I temporarily, you know, eat this way, then I can lose weight, meet my health goals, do whatever it might be, get my blood pressure down, whatever the situation might be. And then I'll eventually go back to normal, being a normal person, quote unquote, right? And I can eat whatever I want. But the reality is, and I talk about it in my book, it's it's about developing a different mindset around what it means to be on a diet. A diet is a lifestyle. It's got to be the way that yeah. you're going to eat for the rest of your life. It's your approach to food. It's it's almost like a philosophy. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I think about um, my kids, you know, I talk about parenting issues a lot with other moms and dads and, mm-hmm. you know, just things happening in our culture parenting wise. And my husband and I have a certain parenting philosophy. This is the way in which we parent our children. These are the types of rules we have. And you know, our, this is how we're, we're doing things. And I think the same thing could be said for the, the way that you eat. It's an approach toward how you're treating your body in terms of the food that you're putting in it. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, we're starting to turn the corner and get people to think about it that way. But I think the vast majority of people are still stuck in that diet rut of let me go mm-hmm. on this diet. Let me try that diet. You know, and now we're seeing all these quick fixes that people are still drawn to, like now medication that you could take to lose weight. Right. You know, gummies. It, it's it's <laughs> awful, and it's it's yeah. it's really not the fault of the individuals who are seeking that out. Those are the victims. It's mm-hmm. the fault of this constant idea that's been perpetuated that, you know, just do this little one thing and it's a cycle. And we have to get out of that and just realize that it's got to be a lifestyle and just the way that you want to live. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Diets. I don't call it diets anymore. I have a food plan that was prescribed by a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. I eat five times a day. There's no sugar in it. A lot of vegetables. Uh, I have a lot of fat in it. I have a lot of protein, uh, but fat doesn't make you fat. Uh, You have to limit it, but uh, fats are important to our bodies. Uh, I want to talk about the brain side of this. Um, And this is what you study. Uh, You say dopamine has a prominent role in addiction. Talk about the brain science, the pleasure centers of the brain 
the neurotransmitters, neurochemicals in the brain, which could lead to food and sugar addiction? We spent a lot of time doing research studies on the brain and how sugar affects the brain in particular related to the reward system and the dopamine, which is one of the neurotransmitters that can be released in that reward system. And so essentially what our studies have found is that when someone is consuming sugar, it releases dopamine in the brain in a way that looks like what would happen if somebody was using a drug like alcohol or heroin or morphine. And that really was a finding that was very important because up until that point in time, you know, we had been publishing, and this is going back probably over 20 years now, we had started publishing some studies, you know, talking about food addiction from the behavioral standpoint and how, you know, food addiction could meet certain criteria, sugar addiction in particular, that would be listed as the criteria for being diagnosed as having a substance use disorder, according to the American Psychiatric Association. So we've been looking at those different criteria. And when we started to like look at the brain, that was when I think, you know, for me, it it got real exciting. And we started publishing papers showing changes in the brain system, the brain reward system, and showing this release of dopamine that looked like a drug. Also showing changes in the receptors for dopamine, gene changes. So it was more than just sugars releasing dopamine. Sugar was changing the dopamine system. And what that essentially means is that when our reward system is set into overdrive, we have this sort of primitive brain system that's the reward system, right? That's why it feels good. It's to do certain things like to mate. Obviously, we need to make more humans, so it feels good to mate. It also feels good to eat to some degree, right? Because we need to eat when we're hungry. Mm-hmm. But drugs of abuse can overactivate that system and set it into overdrive. That's why, you know, if you think about it, this primitive brain system can be very powerful, but we have our executive control. We have the frontal cortex, which can then go back and say, no, 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 do not mate with that person. (laughs) That's not the person (laughs) you're supposed to mate with. Stay away from that person. We have restraint, right? We can restrain our primitive drives, right? That frontal control allows that to happen. But what happens when someone crosses that line into becoming addicted is that we lose the ability for the frontal cortex to have executive control. So just like if someone was a sex addict, their frontal cortex might be saying, do not do that, but their brain is going to win out. That primitive urge is going to win out. Same with drugs of abuse. Even though the frontal cortex is telling that person, do not use drugs. And even in the case of someone who's struggling with a food addiction, you know, do not eat that, make better choices. the message doesn't get there. We lose our ability to Mm -hmm. self-regulate. And so that's the neuroscience of why people can't just, you know, eat in moderation because the cutoff has been made. There is no moderation when someone's addicted. Yeah. And uh, we talk uh, in my 12-step recovery program that, you know, once I started eating the fudge, I could not stop. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I wanted to stop. I told myself I would stop, but I could not stop on my own. And, and that's, that's really what you're talking about. But it's interesting, though, not everyone who eats sugar and highly processed foods becomes addicted, just like not all people who ingest alcohol become addicted. I did. 
but not everybody does. Uh, it, you know, that reward sensitivity, the addict brain, talk about that. Yeah, you know, there's a big genetic component to it in the sense that you're so right that there's lots of people out there who can engage in eating sweets and pasta and bread and know when they can, you know, have enough and be able to put the brakes on. But there are people who are just genetically predisposed because maybe of a family history, maybe because of a trauma that they experienced. Mm -hmm. There's just interesting or both or both in the intersect of those two. There's so much interesting Mm -hmm. literature that I've been delving into lately about adverse childhood events, ACEs, and how they have a significant impact on health outcomes later in life. And food addiction is one of them. Overeating is one of Mm -hmm. them. And I think, um, that's an important piece to consider. And, and it's in our, our food environment as well. And, you know, there's a lot of different factors that play a role. And I think that, you know, part of the challenge in helping people who are struggling with addiction is, you know, to figure out what are those causes? What are those reasons why certain people develop addiction and others don't? And how can we understand them? And how can that inform treatment moving forward? Because I think when people start to peel back the layers and realize, yeah, I had a very child, uh, traumatic childhood. I didn't even realize that until I started to, you know, talk to somebody about Mm it and find out that, you know, oh, my grandparents were both alcoholics. And that's maybe the reason why I inherited those genes. You start to be able to see, you know, where this is coming from and where some of the behaviors come from. And I think it helps people because it takes away some of the self blame that people often tend to put on themselves when they are initially coping with, you know, their addiction. Yeah. Um, you know, when I weighed 70 pounds more, I weighed over 200 pounds. I was eating big quantities of, of food. I was eating a lot of sugar and my tolerance was higher. Mm. Talk about tolerance and the role that plays in food addiction. We've done a significant amount of work looking at tolerance as it relates to sugar and tolerance is essentially our need over time to consume more and more and more of something because we no longer get that euphoria or pleasure that we used to get from having just a little bit of it. So the best example does come from the alcohol literature where, you know, when people are younger, maybe, or first start drinking alcohol as an adult, they, might feel a little intoxicated off of maybe just one or two drinks. But if somebody is drinking more and more and more alcohol, they're actually going to require more and more and more alcohol in order to feel that euphoria and the buzz that they typically would have gotten from less alcohol. So that's what tolerance is. And tolerance develops over time. And the same thing happens with sugar. And we see this happening through a variety of different studies where our laboratory rats in our initial studies and then people too will report that over time they feel that they need more and more and more sugar to feel satisfied. And that is part of the problem because when you know we look at the types of foods that people are over consuming, they're already starting out eating a ton of sugar because so many of our products that are in our grocery store have a lot of added sugar and people end up needing much more than that. So it's really an mm-hmm. excessive amount of sugar that people end up consuming because 
the threshold that they're starting at is actually pretty high. Mm-hmm. And so this is really yeah. a detriment um, for many people because getting, you know, that satisfaction that they're seeking becomes harder and harder and requires them to eat more and more. Yeah. Um, I, I can relate to that. And, um, y- you know, when I first began drinking, when I was in, I guess, probably in high school, college, uh, I could have a glass or two of wine and get an effect, mm-hmm. but it took more and more as I got older to have that same effect. And the same thing with sugar and a lot of, uh, um, a lot of food. I, it took, it took more to get, um, to get the same effect. And, and later in this, we're going to talk about withdrawal and cravings, but, um, you have a, a questionnaire in your book, which, um, is kind of like, are you a food addict? And I've taken these before mm-hmm. and it's pretty clear that I, I am a food addict and I'm in recovery now, uh, one day at a time. But, um, one, which always gets me and it's, and, uh, in the, in this, and you have it phrased maybe in a little bit different way, but despite the negative consequences, you know, despite my health, despite having 70 pounds, I didn't need, I had diabetes, high blood pressure. I have had four joint replacements. My family was worried about me. I felt out of control. I felt like a failure on diets. Uh, but I continued to eat in the same way despite the negative consequences. And that really is a sign of an addict, right? It is. And I think that this is an important point. And I'm very glad that you brought this up because, you know, I mentioned earlier, we have these criteria that the American Psychiatric Association has in their DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that catalogs the criteria one needs to meet in order to be diagnosed with having a substance use disorder or an addiction. And I think that the use despite negative consequences is a social construction. So if you think about it, let's just take the example of somebody who maybe is an alcoholic. A negative consequence might be I got pulled over and now I got a DWI and now I have to go to jail and I lost my license. That's going to hit home. That's that's a social mm-hmm. construct that we've created to prevent people from drinking and driving. And that's the punishment. The problem with food addiction is that it's now normal to be obese. So if the side effect of your food addiction is that you're obese, well, 60% of the country is obese. So you're just normal then. It's not really like you're any different. Same with having diabetes, same with having high blood pressure. It's not like you're going to go to the doctor and they're going to scream and yell at you for having diabetes. They're going to say, well, okay, you're basically just like everyone else that I see in my practice. So here's some medication and here's some more pills and go be on your way. And so I think that unfortunately, many of these disease states have become normal and we've normalized them as a result. And, you know, I've, I've had conversations with people who they don't really feel bothered by the fact that they have been diagnosed with mm-hmm. prediabetes or that they have blood high blood pressure. And it's obvious that their blood pressure is due to excess body weight and probably would go away if they were to lose that excess body weight. And unfortunately, I think that many times the food addiction piece gets lost because of this whole negative consequences. People don't see those things as really negative consequences because they're just normal consequences now. Yeah. Well, there's societal, um, you know, acceptance. And that's what my, 
my my doctor did scare me about the diabetes, but I had taken high blood pressure medicine for many years, probably 15 years. To, I took two, two high blood pressure medicines, but I don't have anything now. I don't, I don't take any of it. I mean, the, it was obesity related, all of it. You say 60% of our U.S. population is obese? Overweight or obese, yes. Yes, and those numbers are going up. Obese. Yeah, and those numbers yeah. are going up. And, you know, when we look at the younger generations, we're seeing the numbers trajecting even higher. So mm-hmm. um, I think we're going to see that, if anything, those numbers will continue to go up as the years go on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you have in your book something called the Sugar Freedom Plan. And uh, you talk about it's a way for sugar and food addicts to wean themselves off sugar. Um, but I, I guess from my experience, I was a critical level food addict, and I don't know that that would have worked for me. Right. Uh, and I think you know what I'm, where I'm going here. Uh, for people that say just uh, drink one sugar, sugary, you know, uh, just eat one cookie, just eat, uh, drink one Coke, right. you know, or something. Uh, it would not have worked for me. So I had to do do it cold turkey. And if we're truly addicted, can you really wean yourself off this food? Yeah, it's a really great question. And this is something that comes up quite a bit because when we talk about addiction, most people think that if you're addicted to something, you have to give it up, right? If you're addicted to cocaine, I'm not going to tell you to just do a little cocaine. I'm going to say, don't do any cocaine, Right. And so with drugs and even with alcohol, it can be pretty clear, right? You can say, okay, I'm staying away from alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. I know where the alcohol is. I know what beverages have alcohol in it. So it's pretty, I don't want to say easy, but it's easier to avoid alcohol and drugs. So you can go cold turkey on those things. And it can, I think, help people who are addicted to, you know, break through their addiction much easier. The problem with food and sugar in particular is that there are, first of all, degrees of addiction, right? I think addiction is a spectrum. And now we have this in the DSM where, you know, we have mild addiction to severe addiction. And so there's going to be people on all different levels of that spectrum. So individuals like yourself, maybe were in the more severe category where abstinence was necessary, whereas individuals who maybe are in the mild to moderate, but they're at risk for severe, maybe they could do more of a harm reduction approach. And so I really talk in the book to try to speak to kind of the whole breadth of the audience of people who, you know, maybe, yes, Mm -hmm. need to cold turkey quit the foods that trigger them for sure. And I talk about this often where, you know, I lay out a plan for people to help weed themselves off of sugar, because a lot of times people don't even know where the sugar is. The sugar is hiding in our food. People think they're eating a healthy diet and then they look and realize, oh my God, there's sugar in everything I'm eating. Could you imagine if alcohol was hidden in your ketchup and if alcohol was hidden in, you know, the granola bar that you thought was really healthy? I mean, it would just be so much more difficult to give up something that you're addicted to if you don't know where the thing's hiding. And so part of what I I do in the book and part of what I do, you know, when I lecture on this is to educate people about how to find sugar, because it doesn't say clearly on the label, this has sugar in it. It has agave syrup. It has a fruit concentrate. It has all these code words that actually mean sugar. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times people need to get 
up to speed on identifying the sugar. And I I try to do that through the book and through the steps of helping them to see, Mm -hmm. you know, how they can go about that. Yeah, you've got a list in there of over 50, I think around 56 different uh, things that it sort of disguised themselves as sugar, um, dextrose, among others. And we learn in our program that what what constitutes sugar. There were a few surprises in there for me, but I cannot have anything where sugar is fourth or earlier on the ingredients label, mm-hmm. and that includes corn syrup and all of the offenders. Uh, but you talk about, uh, going back to what you said about sobriety in alcohol, and you just stop drinking, you know. Um, but in uh, in with food, we, we still have to eat. And so for me, it was complete abstinence. Uh, maybe weaning would work with, with some people, but it didn't work with me. And so where I'd like to go is talking about withdrawal and the cravings um, and the symptoms of withdrawal. You say fatigue, irritability, sadness, lethargy, headaches, strong cravings, and drowsiness. I mean, I had all of those. Yeah. And I don't know how long they lasted, but it was about six and a half years ago and I went abstinent, and um, I was beginning to eat really healthily. I eat 20 ounces of vegetables a day. I couldn't finish them all at the beginning, but I've learned to finish them all, and I you know, feel great, but I had to go through with the withdrawal. I had to go through the cravings, and uh, so talk about withdrawal and cravings and cold turkey, and is it worth it? I think any step toward improving your health is worth it always, right? No matter what size that step is, if it's a cold turkey plunge into changing everything, then it's worth it. If it's a baby step where you're no longer drinking sugar sweetened beverages and focusing on phasing that out as the first thing that you can handle, then that's still an achievement in my book. So definitely it's worth it. The, The withdrawal piece, I think, can be the challenge for many people because a lot of times people will experience the headaches, the lethargy, the irritability, and they'll misattribute that to them then feeling like they have low blood sugar. <laughs> I've had so many people tell yeah. me this that, you know, oh, I, I had all these headaches. I felt like I didn't feel right. I was irritable. You know, my, my blood sugar must have been plummeting. So I had to eat sugar to bring it back up. And I'll say, I guarantee you, your blood sugar was not plummeting. It was basically the fact that you're in withdrawal. That's your brain's way of saying, give me more sugar. Where's my sugar? You've been feeding me sugar all these years, and now you stopped it. It's like a kid throwing a tantrum. And so that's the effect. And until your brain can come back to some level of homeostasis where it realizes, and again, I go back to the parenting analogy, you know. Once you, you're not going to give into the temper tantrum, right? When you give into your four-year-old throwing a fit in the store because they didn't get a toy and you give them a toy, guess what? Every time you go to the store, guess who's throwing a fit? Well, it's the same thing with the withdrawal. If you give into it and, you know, eat a cookie to alleviate your withdrawal symptoms, then, you know, the same thing's going to happen. You're going to have the withdrawal symptoms and that's where this vicious cycle of binging, withdrawal, craving can come into play. So the withdrawal piece is something that it varies depending on the individual. You know, I've had other people who have reported that they felt that they were completely addicted to sugar 
but they never felt any feelings of withdrawal. They would have mild mm. feelings, if anything. So it really does vary depending on the individual. And it's really just a, a matter of just waiting it out. It doesn't last forever. Yeah. It's a few days. I think the longest I've ever had anyone tell me that the withdrawal lasted was maybe two weeks. And during that period, that's when you really just need to focus in on your goals and focus in on why you're doing this and know that your discomfort from your brain healing is necessary. And that's really the opposite, mm -hmm. right? Because people, as humans, we tend to think, oh, if we don't feel good, if something doesn't make us feel good, we shouldn't do it, right? Right. That's right. just our body's yeah. natural reaction to anything. Mm -hmm. So when you're leaning into doing something that is making you not feel good, that goes mm -hmm. against human nature. And so that's why it can be hard for people to, you know, stay on board, mm -hmm. but you have to remember this is your brain's way of detoxifying itself basically from the sugar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I knew that I could not, would not go on another diet. Uh, I knew that I wanted to live. I had family, I had grandkids. I wanted to live. And I really knew that I had reached the bottom and I had to completely surrender that I could not do this on my own. And you talk in the book about having support. Mm. Maybe that's family. Uh, withdrawal is tough. Cravings can be tough, but it is, it really is worth it. And um, I use a 12 step recovery program. I don't diet anymore. And, you know, I do it a day at a time. So it is possible to live you know, like this. Um, one of the things that I think is very interesting about addiction that you talk about, and this is the case with alcohol or food, in latent addiction, like I had in both alcohol and food, uh, say someone is addicted to drugs, critical level sugar food addict, it's not about eating it, the stuff for pleasure anymore. Right. It's about avoiding the withdrawal. Exactly. Right? which is not always understood, right? Right. And so I talk about this quite often. And I teach a health psychology class at Princeton to undergraduates and the opponent process theory of addiction comes up quite a bit. And so the opponent process theory is this idea that when people first start using an addictive substance, they get high when they use it. And then they have a, a mild low after the drug wears off, but then they kind of go back to normal. But what happens when someone's addicted is that their baseline is way low. So they're using the substance. They're starting the day feeling like crap. They're using yeah. the substance to try to just feel normal again. And so yeah. the high that they get actually isn't really a high. It's just getting them back to normal. And it's, fleeting. And then that goes away. Yeah. And then they're back down below baseline again. And so it really becomes a situation where people are just using the substance just to try to feel normal. And that's an awful feeling to have to live with every day because people feel mm -hmm. trapped. And so yeah. that's the crux of, you know, why people use, yeah, people have this misconception that people are using drugs and alcohol and food to feel good. It makes them feel good. It doesn't, it makes them feel normal. It doesn't make them feel good. Mm -hmm. And so, right. um, 
it's not that these people are just, you know, pleasure seekers and, and, and hedonic seekers. No, not at all. If anything, they're, they're struggling and they're just trying to like grasp at the life raft and mm-hmm. really just, you know, get back to some state of feeling normal. Yeah. We know that, um, obesity, the obesity rates are un- unbelievable. When you go out in society, you see it. Uh, we say that we wear this disease, uh, obesity can be a symptom of food ad- addiction, mm-hmm. not always. Right. Um, let's talk about the changes in the availability and types of foods. Uh, my great-grandparents in the early 1900s did not eat this way. That was really only, you know, about 100 years ago, 120 years ago, which sounds like a long time, but it wasn't. They had a farm. Uh, they ate whole foods. Uh, they didn't eat foods with preservatives or processed foods. They ate chicken, beef. They ate vegetables from their gardens. Nobody was overweight back then. Uh, sugar was not really available. It wasn't highly processed. Um, so talk about what's changed. And and you did not see this kind of obesity uh, that you see you know, back then that you see today. When I was in elementary school in the 60s, there was one guy that was overweight. There's one kid. Yeah. You know, so talk about what's changed. Yeah. And that kid, it was probably a genetic obesity, right? I'm sure if you look at his whole family, they were probably all overweight to some degree. (laughs) They were. It wasn't due to the food environment, which is the reason why most people are obese these days. And so the big thing that's changed is what we eat and how much of it we eat. And when you take a look at the reliance on processed foods that's developed, it's just astronomical. And if you go into a grocery store, you see this, right? You could hang out in the perimeter of the grocery store. That's where the fresh products are that are going to, you know, spoil in a couple of days. So you got to buy them and eat them. The rest of the grocery store is filled with aisles and aisles of highly processed man-made concoctions of ingredients that people say are also food. I've actually been doing a lot of talking lately in my lectures about this idea that we really need to reconstruct the definition of what a food is, because I think that's a big problem. We keep saying like, oh, just eat food, eat food, eat food. And on one hand, you have Pop-Tarts that are considered a food, which for those who are familiar with what a Pop-Tart is, it's this like (laughs) pastry thing. It's supposed to be a breakfast item. It's marketed toward kids, but it's essentially a man-made combination of like tons of different ingredients, dyes, preservatives. Yeah. And then carrots are also a food, right? So you have two completely different ends of the spectrum, in my opinion. You know, one is a highly processed man-made science experiment, essentially, that they package in a box and put, you know, pretty colors on and now they sell it in the store and then there's things like carrots and you know vegetables fruits you know other things that are clearly food you could grow these things they've been around forever we know where they come from um and so i think that there's a real big disconnect there and that's what's causing a lot mm-hmm. of people to have problems and that's the whole eat in moderation right you know yeah, yeah. why should i be told that i need to eat oreo cookies in moderation like who, I don't even think that's a food. It's not on my no, it's radar not. as a food. So yeah. that's, that's really, I think a big, a, a big piece of this that we need to start talking more about is, you know, how do we mm-hmm. define what a food is? Because my foods might be different than someone else's foods. 
we're going to talk about um, some of the some of the things that are going on here. But we know that sugar. The minute that we say that sugar is an additive and not a food, uh, the, the landscape and the universe will change. One of the things you say in the book is sugar is a toxic substance and can contribute to multiple health conditions. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, the DSM and the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, what constitutes a, an addiction, and this is from the American Psychiatric Association, um, and food addiction is considered more of a psychological disorder versus a substance use disorder. And I understand from this, and I'm not an expert, but there are seven criteria with the APA and the DSM that constitutes an addiction. Uh, but one of the problems is the broad category of foods, you know, what constitutes a food that's addictive, processed foods, sugar, flour. So talk about what's going on here. Yeah, I think this is where we're kind of stuck right now with getting food addiction recognized by medical organizations, by the APA, because we need to get on the same page again with what a food is. I think that's that's where it begins, right? Because, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about people who are overeating broccoli or overeating lettuce. Like that's not happening. So, you know, those are the foods. <laughs> The sugars and the highly processed foods are the ones that are the problem. And so I think that's where we're kind of up against the wall because whenever, you know, I've presented this work to those agencies, you know, the, the big pushback is always, well, you need to eat food to survive. So we can't say food's addictive. That's the answer, but it's really not all foods, it's certain foods. So we're doing research to try to elucidate more clearly which foods we're referring to when we talk about food addiction and sugar addiction in particular. Um, I also think it's, it's really been a challenge, you know, just getting acceptance of this whole idea of food addiction amongst the broader community of individuals out there due to the fact that we have so many people who are, I want to say in denial of their food addiction. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Many times people can become obese as a result of food addiction, but I see this among kids. There are so many kids that are addicted to food who are perfect body weight, not an ounce overweight, mm. but the addiction happens up here in your brain. It manifests as a health problem years later. It's a silent killer. And so you're not going to you know, drop dead from having a cookie today. But over the course of doing that for many, many years, you're going to develop chronic health conditions that are going to reduce your lifespan and reduce your, reduce your longevity. And it's kind of like smoking cigarettes, right? People start smoking and they might smoke for 30 years before they get lung cancer or, you know, they might not get lung cancer at all. And so that's where I think it becomes difficult to get people on board with this whole idea of, you know, sugar and food addiction being dangerous to our health because the danger occurs over many, many years, not necessarily, mm -hmm. it's not an acute condition. What you're talking about with the tobacco industry reminds me of what's going on with the food industry today. And there are those who say that what happened with cigarettes in the 60s and 70s is what's happening with food, processed food, sugar today. And the minute that food addiction becomes accepted in the DSM-5 as a 
substance use disorder, the landscape changes. Insurance companies will be expected to treat food addiction and treatment centers, just like alcohol and drugs. I mean, it all changes, right? It does. It'll change for the better for the people suffering. But I I also worry that it's not going to be the cure for the problem, the societal problem, Mm -hmm. because what's that going to do to the food industry? The food industry is still going to have leeway to then make all these addictive foods. No one's going to say to them they have to stop doing that, right? So yeah, mm-hmm. I hope we get food addiction and sugar addiction recognized by the DSM. And I'm, I think at some point we will. And I want that for the people who are struggling. But what I want more is for us to not have this happen to begin with, right? Because it's going to yeah. be a vicious cycle. So the food industry can continue to make all these addictive foods. People can get the diagnosis of food addiction, get treatment. And it's a it's a cycle that's going to perpetuate itself. And I just think mm-hmm. that we need to approach it on multiple levels and do more to make our food environment better. So this doesn't happen to begin with. Right. It's, it kind of reminds me of Nancy Reagan, you know, in the eighties with drugs, just say no. Yes. And it's just like drugs. It, this is not a supply problem. It's a demand problem. It's a supply problem, but it is a demand problem. And until people stop, you know, start not demanding it, it will change the food industry. Yes. But there's a lot of, as you've said in other podcasts, there are a lot of lobby efforts out there in the food industry. It's a huge industry of PepsiCo, craft, uh, the food industry. To me, it is, I'll just say this for me, there's a conspiracy here, I think. Get and keep people addicted to sugar. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think that's what's actually happening. That's a that's the truth. Yeah. And I think that you know, the diet industry is playing into that, the whole, you know, everything in moderation. I mean, that's basically perpetuating this whole idea that we should be able to have all of these toxic foods, just eat them in moderation, even though they're hijacking Mm -hmm. your brain and causing you to not have executive control over your decision making, you should still be able to eat them in moderation. It doesn't work, right? So the logic just isn't It doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, it does not work. Well, as we close out a couple more questions for you, Dr. Ravina, and it's, this has been great. I've loved your book. I've loved watching you. You're a pro at this and thank you for everything you do, especially around childhood, uh, obesity and, uh, and making sure kids are eating better. Um, you studied the disease. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the benefits of recovery, 12 step recovery and other methods, right? Mm-hmm. So talk about that. When people, are able to get a handle on their situation and are able to start to enter recovery and make the changes and put the work in to better their life. The value that they get and the reward that they get is just so much greater than anything that they got from food. And they start to see how much better they feel Um, and you know, again, it's not all about weight loss, right? Because I've worked with many, many people over the years who didn't need to lose weight. They were able to somehow miraculously manage their weight, but they were more focused on their addiction to food and the psychological addiction, the preoccupation with it. Um, that was what is driving them. And when you can break free from that and you have the ability to, you know, be in control finally. That is so empowering, and that is something that people don't want to give up once they have it. 
The control piece is, I think, the most important reward that people get. When you get back control of your life, you're never giving it up again. Because when you know what it's like to not have control, you don't want to go back there. And so once you get yeah. it back, it's not, it's not ever getting given up again. I'm not, I'm not going back there. Yeah. I've never felt healthier. I'm 64 years old and I've never felt healthier in my life. That's amazing. And, and, and that's, you know, right that's really the, the, the whole goal should be, you know, I want to feel good. I want to feel as yeah. healthy as I can. And I always tell people, you know, it's so rewarding and exhilarating to be able to walk around and know that you're doing everything you can to feel the best you can and to take the best care mm -hmm. of your body and your body will pay you back. I mean, it will, because you'll be able to walk up flights yeah. of stairs. No problem. You'll be able to, you know, walk right. down the street. You're, you're limitless. And to right. get that power back is just so rewarding. Yeah. It is cool. I can play basketball with my eight and six year old grandsons with for an hour without getting out of breath. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't do that before. Right. So it's, it's a blessing. It's amazing. Uh, last question. Um, what is your hope for our world uh, in the next five to 10 years around food addiction and obesity in our country? Well, I hope that we can continue down the path that we're on of people like yourself and other scientists that are out there like me really advocating for the importance of making people aware of this issue. And my hope is that we'll start to see some real changes in our food environment, especially amongst young people, especially amongst parents mm -hmm. with young ch children, yeah. because I think that's really an important part of reducing the problem is making sure that we're not essentially raising another generation of little sugar addicts that are going to grow up to become, yeah. you know, overweight, diabetic, high blood pressure, 25 year olds, because that's essentially what's happening. And so my hope is that we'll start to see people really understand. And I think it's happening that they're starting to see the damaging effects that having a poor diet can have on the, your lifestyle and the way you feel, the way you look, and people are going to get sick of it and say, I've had enough. And, yeah. and they're going to make yeah. the changes. And I think we just need to make it easier for them, right? We need to, you know, I'm, I'm, my goal would be to get some of these grocery stores to just really get on board with, you know, only having the healthy stuff or only having a few varieties of unhealthy stuff. I'm not saying they can't make their money, but you don't need to have 56 different types of cereal that's loaded with sugar. Maybe you just have three, right? <laughs> so it's still a demand problem. It is. They want more. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. But that's where I'm hoping yeah. we'll go. So I'm, I'm confident that yeah. we'll, we'll get in the Me right too. direction. Yeah. I hope I hope food addiction is recognized by the APA, the DSM five, as being a substance use disorder. That's my hope, and uh, that um, you know it is treated uh, like uh, drugs and alcohol and other addictions. Uh, uh, but again, you know, people have to say, "I don't want to live like this anymore." Right? Right. And, uh, recognize the the addictive nature of food and highly processed uh, foods and sugar. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Thanks again, Dr. Avina, for joining me. Uh, her book is Why 
remind me why why diets fail why diets fail and um and because you're addicted to sugar Uh, sugar. great book thank you and i'll just say one last thing if it's okay i I have another book sure Uh, why diets fail is out in paperback um and it came out oh gosh almost 10 years ago initially came out in hardcover i have a new book that'll be coming out the end of 2023 it's called sugarless and it essentially picks up where why diets fail leaves off and walks people through the latest research on sugar addiction, how you recognize sugar in your diet, how do you cope with, you know, some of the things we didn't get a chance to talk about, like those alternative sweeteners, stevia, monk fruit, you know, all these, you know, other factors that play a role in addiction. How do we deal with people pushing sugar on us, the psychological, mm-hmm. social piece of it too. So that will be out in December of 2023. It's called Sugarless, and you'll be able to get that uh, wherever books are sold. Barnes and Nobles is the publisher, so um, I'm really excited about it. Okay, and help a lot of people. Cool. And what is your website? My website is drnicoleavina.com, and on social media, you could find me at Dr. Nicole Avina. Dr. Nicole Avina. Yep, I'm following you, and I've been to your website a couple of times, and I'll make sure it's in the notes. And uh, yeah, all of your books, including the ones around pregnancy, uh, eating while you're pregnant, uh, and then the the children books, and then two other books, the hedonic eating, and then the one I read, uh, and your other one will be coming out. They're all on Amazon, but uh, you can go to Barnes and Noble too. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Avina. It's been great. Thank you. It's been great talking to you, Susan. Thank you. This is the Food Addiction Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and learned more about this disease. We hope you will rate and write a review on this podcast and share it with others. If you or someone you know is suffering from the disease of food addiction, there is a solution. The various food addiction recovery programs are available and listed on the website, theinfactschool.com. Or if you would like to know more about how to get certified in treating food addiction, the school is accepting applications now for its next training beginning in September 2023. Go to theinfactschool.com. That's I-N-F-A-C-T school.com to learn more.